Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. On December 8th, Hometown Stories hosted its first ever in-person storytelling event. We invited the community to hear from three guest speakers to talk about hometowns, how they've been inspired by and continue to inspire their hometowns. We met at Little Green Hive's Grandin Village Coffee Shop. There was a light rain falling, but we settled in for a cozy evening of storytelling and reflection, and we made sure to record it so we could share it with you. Good evening, everybody. Hello. Woohoo! I like the response. This is great. Well, welcome, welcome. I thank you all so much for being here. Um, this is very, very exciting, and I just can't thank you enough for choosing to spend a Thursday night with us. I'm, this is the first time we have ever done an in-person event with our podcast, so I'm so pleased that you either know us and like us enough or trust us enough to come, and hopefully we deliver. So uh, thank you so much. Raise your hand if you have listened to a Hometown Stories podcast episode. Wonderful. I hope that if you have it, that you will. And um, so I'm going to pretend to be an air stewardess for a second, and you all are in our exit row. And so I just need verbal confirmation that you know and are okay with being recorded this evening. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thank you for choosing Delta. Um, my name is Leanna Scacchetti, as I mentioned. I am the host and producer of Hometown Stories the WDBJ7 podcast. We are very excitingly adding new podcasts to our offerings, so be on the lookout for those as well. This is Ben, our editor extraordinaire. Everybody say hi, Ben. <laughs> and we want to extend our sincere gratitude to Little Green High for being open to us tonight. They are also our sponsor, so we're very thankful for them. Uh, this evening, you will hear from three different guests. We are talking about hometowns, how each of our guests were inspired by and continue to inspire their hometowns. You'll hear from each of them independently, and then at the end, they'll all come up for a Q&A session. So that little piece of paper that Chris gave you is your Q&A card. So if throughout the presentation you have a question for a guest, put their name on there and your question, and we'll collect them before the Q&A round. Are you all excited? Yeah. Yay! I'm so excited. All right, so without further ado, we'll go ahead and make, make sure I run through my list of all the things I needed to do here. Um, we really wanted to focus on hometowns because, of course, we are your hometown station. And when I started working at Channel 7, I thought a lot about hometowns because I'm somebody who I grew up in multiple different states and multiple different towns. 
So I ask myself a lot of the time, what does it mean for something to be a hometown? Is it the place that you're born? Is it the place that you were raised? Or is it the place that you choose to be? And I think you'll hear from all of our guests this evening that hometowns can be all of those things. And I am so grateful and so glad to have found Roanoke and chosen it as my home at this stage in my life. And I feel very welcomed here and it is very homey. So uh, I think we will explore hometowns in further tonight. So our first guest just celebrated a birthday two days ago and uh, we are so excited to have him. Xavier was born in Roanoke where he was raised in a culture of service, generosity, and love for community. He participated in youth mission trips and worked with mentorship and advisory programs throughout high school and college. He founded the Imagine Me Mentoring Program, and it is a commitment to youth education and empowerment. In 2015, he moved back to Roanoke after finishing his football career at ODU, where you were a linebacker, right? And uh, he, uh, his mission was not only to give back to his community, but to uplift it. He founded the Humble Hustle Company, which offers events and programs to underprivileged families in Roanoke. This includes an outdoor exposure and education program for black youth, a leadership development program for young black girls, coat drives, back to school drives, food drives for children in the community. I really had to pare down his bio because it is so long and extensive. You may see Xavier at the Collective in Roanoke, which is not far from here, designing clothing to support the nonprofit, planning events. They've got one coming up next week and securing partnerships with statewide agencies to further his mission. He's been honored with several awards, including the city's Neighborhood All-Star Award, and he was also recognized as one of the Roanoke Magazine's 40 Under 40. Please welcome Xavier Duckett. All right, hopefully all of our microphones work because this is a first for us. So Xavier, go ahead and have a seat. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, thank you so much. Are we good, Ben? If you want to hold it, okay. I don't, but. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so, Xavier, I think you, you fit so perfectly into the hometowns discussion because you were born here, yes. you moved away for college, yes. and you came back. But let's talk about your upbringing. Tell us uh, where you grew up in Roanoke and share a little bit about that upbringing. All right. Um, for everybody out there, um, again, my name is Xavier Duckett. I rarely go by Xavier unless I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> so most of the time it's like X. Um, but I was born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia. I was actually raised in the county, um, a little small, um, predominantly at that time, black neighborhood called Kingstown um, off of Third Lane Road. Um, I, was, I was there till I was 10, 10 or 11. Um, and then we moved to the city, um, stayed there until I was 18, then I moved to Norfolk, um, where I was starting my career at Old Dominion University. What led you back to Roanoke? I mean, you could have gone anywhere in the world, but what brought you back? <laughs> yeah, so um, full transparency, um, when I was uh, started there in, at OD, ODU, I knew that I was gone forever, like I was gone. Like that was it. And I think that's every kind of kid's dream from Roanoke sometimes is like, hey, once I'm out, I'm out. Um, Started playing football, started started to get a little little exposed to the city life, a little bit. Um, Norfolk is much much different than, than than Roanoke, so you can get exposed to a whole lot of things very quickly. Um, and so I was on this roller coaster ride of life. Um, I thought I knew it all, um, but I started my master's program. I was I'm not a dumb person, um, but I uh, I ended up like actually flunking out of grad school. So that's kind of what brought me back home. Um, I was finished with football, 
and it was like, all right, I can work and have an apartment here, but it's probably time I go home to kind of like settle. Came back home. Um, so that's kind of what uh, naturally brought me home. I thought I was going to be in L.A. or New York, um, but that's just not that wasn't God's plan for me. It was, it was to come back home and kind of lay some roots down. And, uh, that's that's kind of where I'm where I'm at now. Did you think that you wanted to be a professional football player or what did you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You can ask just about any coach I had. Like that was the dream. That's any any, you know, young kid's dream um, is to make it all the way. So you make it to middle school then you make it to high school, you make it to college. It's like, all right, I'm making it um, until you get there. And it's like, this is a long shot um, because not that it's not attainable. I think it's just. Um, there's so many people fighting for that one little thing. And if you're not like super, super, super focused on that one thing, it's not gonna happen. Um, and so that was my problem is my focus was everywhere. My focus was everywhere, whether it was girls, whether it was parties, <laughs> whether it was, you know, frat life or uh, working or just, you know, life in general. My focus was not solely football. Um, again, coming from a smaller city, you get exposed to big, big city life. And it's like, it just opens your eyes to everything that's going on in the world. Um, and so unfortunately it, you know, my career ended because of lack of focus. Um, I would say that's ultimately what, what really happened is lack of focus. So you come back to Roanoke mm -hmm. when, and how did you decide, because you are in so many different mentorship roles mm -hmm. now with imagine me humble hustle. Mm -hmm. Um, how did you decide that that was where you were going to put your energies back into the community? Absolutely. Um, so I come from, I always say this, whenever I speak, I come from a very much giving family. Um, my mother's in the crowd. Uh, my grandmother was a giver. Um, she used to have this basement full of like old cake mix and green beans and like all types of stuff. And we would take it to different places where people would come to the house and get it. I just vividly remember my grandmother like being a giver. Um, and that kind of just naturally just was just in my blood. I watched my mother, I watched my aunt, my aunt. Um, so that's always been in me. At 18, I went on my first mission, mission trip to Ghana, Africa. And that's kind of really what changed my life at that point, um, seeing that the world was bigger than me um, and understanding that like what life is truly, truly, truly about is giving and giving of yourself, giving of your love, giving of your, your talents. Um, because it's not for us. It's it's supposed to be implemented into someone else and making their life better. Did mom or grandma have like a mantra that you remember <laughs> or them saying or? Um, my grandmother was always about honesty. My mom was very much be yourself. So I that's vividly where that's that's what I know my mother pushed for me very, very much is just be yourself, just regardless of whatever happens, just be yourself. Like when you're in the community, when you're behind closed doors, whoever you are with, just make sure you are yourself. Don't try to fake it. Just if you like to wear that shirt and nobody else likes it, wear it. Um, and I think if you know me nowadays, you'll know okay, that, <laughs> that message worked. <laughs> so. Um, you talk about for Humble Hustle, the mission is exposure, mm -hmm. education, and empowerment. Yep. How are you guys working to deliver on that mission? And what have you seen it do to the kids that are in the program? Um, so those three words are super important to me. Um, exposure, education, and empowerment. Um, because I think that's what 
allowed me to make it to where I am today. So when you ask that, it's more of like, that's kind of what can make a whole child. Like that's what can make a whole adult. Um, if you're lacking exposure, if you're lacking empowerment from even your mother or your friend, or if you're lacking education, um, you may not be hitting the trajectory of life of where you want to go. Um, I think exposure is the biggest thing. Um, but my mind just went like you said, what have I seen? Yeah. And the kids. That you okay. mentor. So with different programs, there's different things. There's different successes. Um, if I speak about the outdoors program, um, I immediately think of like these three young brothers that I've watched um, be pushed through the, 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 the system, losing parents, um, watching parents on, on drugs, um, be exposed to the outdoors and automatically they see hope of life. Like they see coping skills, they see career options, they see, um, they see life at this point. If you're talking about the mentoring program, um, you're, you're talking about a kid who without the mentoring program may have just been diagnosed with ADHD and, and kind of written off to the, you know, to, to diagnosis. Um, but with our program, it's, we've been, uh, we, uh, we've been able to see that just attention and just pure love um, and consistency can change that, that child's complete paradigm, like quickly. Um, most of the time kids are acting out or doing things because just, it's just a lack of attention in some way, shape or form. So all three of those words, um, we've been able to kind of instill in different programs to see where, what kids need. If you need exposure, okay, we know how to do that. If you need empowerment, hey, we know how to do that. Hey, I can get you working at the shop. I can teach you some skills. Um, and then at least then, you know, you feel like you can do something. It gives you a little bit of hope. Education, same thing. So I could probably name thousands of different stories that um, have been the uh, success of those three words. But uh, yeah, I just, it, it comes from the heart. It comes from um, the foundation that my family laid for me of exposing me and mentors, empowering me and um, finding education in different ways, not just the traditional way. Um, and it's allowed me to kind of take that and snowball effect it into other people as well. You have said that I believe in the community because the community mm -hmm. believes in me. Yeah. <laughs> when you came back to Roanoke and you started instilling these programs mm -hmm. and started doing it um, and, and having events and people are showing up and people right. are counting in you, how did you see the community? Where did you feel assured that the community believed in you? Mm. Where did I feel assured? Uh, I think... I look at it now and I'm seven years in. So that statement holds true because I'm seven years in and um, it's been nothing but love since. Um, I think we've been able to show the community transparency and we've been able to kind of break the mold of what like a young black man can do in this type of city um, because it's not a, uh, we're not the majority of young black entrepreneurs in this city that actually like are pushing community and things like that. There's a lot of us that are doing it, but it's not always shown. So I say that, I, that the, the community believes in me because the community has allowed me uh, to further my mission. Like if I do an event, the community is what, what's backing it, whether it's financially or whether it's just attendance, 
to say, hey, let's keep this going. Um, and it doesn't work without the community. I can't do an event. And if nobody shows up, then there's, you know, there's no event. So I say that the community is the reason why I'm here. You know, my family is the reason why I'm here because without it, there is no humble hustle, to be honest. There's um, our partners, our sponsors, our, you know, our staff, our volunteers, it's all literally community-based. Um, and they believed in something that I saw. I'm very much a visionary. So I always say that I can like look in a, in a blank field and see this roaring stadium but sometimes I forget like a parking lot needs to be built and like, um, you know, we need some refs and, you know, we need we need some things. So systematically, um, sometimes I, I lose it in that. But the community is every time they're like, oh, we know what you need. You need this or, hey, we know what you need. You need this or uh, do this again. Next time, do this. So it's been trial and error, but it's been the community that's kind of been that um, that foundation, I would say. So Roanoke is not New York. It's no. not L.A. But with seven years in now. Absolutely. How do you feel about this journey and the decision to come back? And how is your <laughs> how is your life uh, different now because of it? Uh, Roanoke is not L.A. It's not New York. Let me repeat that again. It's, it's none <laughs> of these things. Um, but you can find your I find my L.A. Um, I know where to go to get New York. I know where to go to get Chicago and. If I need a little bit of international, I know where to go to get those things. Again, exposure. Um, and and through that, I can empower other people of like, hey, look, you know, don't talk, you know, too down on it. Like, it, don't complain unless you're ready to like create something, you know. Um, but I think now I'm 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 very happy that I'm here, and I see that the the roots that I've laid are super strong and like. I've tried to pull out a lot. Um, I think that uh, God has me on a mission. And sometimes you can have this entire plan for what you think your life is going to look like. And there's a road that's traveling right beside it. And it's just completely different. <laughs> um, and it's not a bad thing. So I'm happy that I'm here. I love what I'm doing. Um, I have this innate, like, uh, ability to create things and I look at Roanoke like this blank canvas and there's so many different holes that haven't been filled and so I just make it a challenge to like okay there's no there's no this mm, let's create it mm, there's no this let's do it so I have I've been blessed with this this creativity and this this crazy fast mind um, that I just want to create and Roanoke has been that place that's allowed me to do that and you know with a nice budget right like it, you're not gonna go broke doing it um but you can create and you can fail and then if it doesn't work you're not like homeless you know you can still like bounce back and and, and try it a different way again with the community they see like oh he doesn't stop like he even if he fails he's not gonna stop so i think that's where i am now it's just um the life that I've created for myself has allowed me to travel. So I still get that exposure. I still get to go to a different country and learn things or a different city and, and learn different mechanisms or network and bring it back. So then everybody's in Roanoke like, how did he think about that? And it's it's it comes from exposure. And again, I can empower and educate someone else to think that same way and keep that system going. 
my last question for you then okay. is what what is your what are your goals for your projects and what mm -hmm. is overall your greatest hope for your okay. hometown? Yeah, these are uh, ever changing. Um, every day I wake up with a new idea. Um, I've got ideas till 2045. So I think the goal for each business is different for sure. Um, for the nonprofit right now, we're looking at, we're looking at scaling. So we're, we're, we're seven years in. So we're like, okay, we've been doing well. Like, how do we take this system and multiply it? Whether it's Lynchburg, whether it's New York, whether it's Chesapeake, Virginia, um, there's been people that, that have reached out with our programs and our initiatives and they're like, Hey, we want that. So we're like, how do we like take this and pack it up and whether it's sell it or whether it's teach someone how to do it so that uh, humble hustle becomes a household name. Um, so nonprofit wise, that's what we're at. We're at scaling now. We're like, Hey, let's sustainability and scaling. Um, my imagine me mentoring program, um, is with Roanoke city schools. Um, quick background about that. Like I, I was working in the schools and um, I just did not like what I was doing. Um, I, I felt like my capacity to create and my creativity was being limited. So I quit. And I was like, well, I'll just create my own. And I did it and it worked. <laughs> and uh, we became like the first black owned uh, school, school based mentoring program in Roanoke. And we got contracted with Roanoke City Schools, which is huge. Um, I was 20 seven at the time did you ever have imposter syndrome in like all of this or were you like i got this uh a lot of failure i would say a lot of failure and failure that nobody the outside world can't even fathom um failure that most people would see that door closed and it's like all right i'm out this is it i don't really think like that like i'm gonna kick the door down you close it on me so um so yeah, so for the mentoring program, you know, I want to stay steady. I like I like slow growth. Um, so just grabbing different mentors that believe in the program and that can uh, implement that same mindset that I came in with um, and see the vision and just want to uh, provide uh, good, uh, solid, consistent mentorship to kids. Um, we're not counselors. We're not therapists we are legit mentors like we are the advice givers we are the the good friend of the student that provides that long-standing relationship um and then lastly with the clothing um you know partnerships is the big thing right now with, with us uh, we've been uh, luckily lucky to not lucky we've been blessed to uh gain a partnership with uh, virginia tourism corporation so anytime you're on 81 or coming through norfolk i mean coming through um into virginia anyway and you see that Virginia's Forever sign, uh, our clothing line, Humble Hustle, is partnered with them um, to curate clothing to enhance travel, um, ultimately. So that's been a blessing. And then that got pushed on the boardroom table to Department of Wildlife Resources. And uh, we did a partnership with them with a uh, outdoor uh, collection called The Outdoors Are Better Together. Um, and all of those proceeds go back into the nonprofit for our outdoor program. So it's just it's just this uh, this mechanism of blessings that I would say um, that I think I was given at a very, very young age um, and it kind of stuck with me. So for lack of, you know, a long story, I would just say I'm just going to keep creating. Uh, I'm going to keep creating and I'm going to keep kicking down doors and I'll continue to expose, empower and educate in any room that I go in. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, 32, um, mm -hmm. 
I feel like I'm 23, uh, but I think that's that's where I am now is just how can I continue to create without capacity? So. I think Mechanism of Blessings could be the title yeah. for your first book. Absolutely. Xavier, Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. We appreciate you. <laughs> I actually met our next guest a couple years ago after she wrote her first book, and I'm very excitedly have her second book behind me to sign uh, because I haven't seen her in a while. But Leah Weiss is a Southern writer living in Virginia. Her short stories have appeared in Deep South Magazine, Serving House Journal, and A Simple Life Magazine. Her debut novel, If the Creek Don't Rise, was released in 2017, and it was selected as a Library Reads, Indie Next, and Siba Okra. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Thanks. It was honored as a 2018 finalist for the Library of Virginia's Literary Fiction and People's Choice Awards. Her second novel, All the Little Hopes, was released in 2021 and was a Library Reads BAM's December 2021 book club choice and named a Best Book for Fall 2021 by Country Living Magazine. It was a 2022 finalist for the Library of Virginia's People's Choice Award. Prior to writing, she worked for many years at the Virginia Episcopal School in Lynchburg, in Lynchburg and published her very first novel at age 70. Please welcome Leah Weiss. Well, welcome, and thank you for being here, Leah. It's oh, so good it's to wonderful. see you. Thank you for the invitation. I think the last time I saw you was over Zoom, so it's exciting to be in person again. <laughs> it is. Um, so um, I guess my first question is, are you writing anything else right now? Should we be on the lookout for anything? Well, my husband said, you are a writer. I asked him, I said, are you really ready for a third book? Because books take me three to four years. I mean, it is a huge investment of time, research. Um, so he said to me, well, you are a writer. And he said, and I have all of my things that I love doing. So, uh, yes, I've got a third book that, that I'm working on. I'm super right. excited. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, has anybody read or are familiar with Leah's books? Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. In right. um, knowing uh, about the books that you write, they're focused in Appalachia. And some of your upbringing was also based in Appalachia. So where were you born and where were you raised? Well, actually, that's the discrepancy there. I was not born in Appalachia, nor have I had any real exposure to it, except what research does. I was born in eastern North Carolina, which is the flatlands uh, of tobacco country, uh, which is where the second book is set. So North Carolina is still prevalent in both of my books, which is my home state. And when did you move to Virginia? We moved here when I was 10. Um, and believe me, it was a huge change for me because I moved from a tiny town of a thousand people. Um, I, I have such fond memories. I still go back frequently and visit friends there and family. But when moving, when we moved to Lynchburg with its 50,000 people, uh, it's seven hills, it's two movie theaters on the main street. You know, it was, uh, it was an extraordinary um, a wide world that was opening for me. So, but Lynchburg has been my home for the last 60 years. Did you think when you moved to Lynchburg that that would be your permanent home, or did well, you think you were going to Of course not. Leave? Xavier said it perfectly. He said, when you're young and you're vibrant with all this 
this education going on. I really think my family thought they would never see me again, except the occasional Christmas card or Lee is coming into town once a year. But something happened when I went to, away to college in Washington, D.C., and that was a huge nostalgia and a huge love of my hometown and my family, and I missed it. And I can remember coming home more, much more often than I ever thought. I think one time my dad said, well, we thought we got rid of you, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a love of, um, I guess, both the familiar. I had an opportunity to do a lot of extraordinary things, but I, I find that extraordinary things are extraordinary wherever you are, so. When you came back to Lynchburg, um, did you know at any point, did you know at any point in your life that you wanted to be a writer? What did you think that your trajectory was going to be? I'm one of those people who has a strange writing story. And that is, I, it wasn't until I was 58. Um, I was doing some communicating with a friend, doing some exploring about spiritual things. And he commented to me, he said, you write very well. We're emailing each other. And he said, and I particularly love the the insertion of humor. He said, you make me chuckle out loud a lot. And he said, have you ever thought of writing? And I said, no, I really don't know if the world needs another book. And I mean, if you stop and step into a, um, a Barnes and Noble or even our wonderful local indies, you know, you look around and you say, how in the world do I possibly compete with something like that? But I was given an important tool that um, became an extraordinary blessing. I was told and reminded that my mother was a, a subject that I needed to know more about. So it, when I was 58, my mother, who was one of 15 children, born on a tobacco farm with no running water, no electricity. I went over after work with my tape recorder and I began asking questions because I said, I know the stories we tell around Christmas time and all of our family reunions, but I said, it's all these specifics and the logistics, I don't know how it works. Those stories became my first memoirs about our, our family. A few of those did get published. And then I segued into short story uh, fiction writing because I knew nothing about it. I've never taken a writing course, which is both an embarrassment, but also proof that if you look at the craft of writing and you treat it extraordinarily respectfully uh, and you are busy trying to break it down, but also really elevate it. Um, it's, uh, it's an exciting journey. So it was about 10 years from the time I wrote my mother's memoirs to the time that I signed with a New York agent and another two years after that before my first book was published. And that time with your mother eventually, in, in retrospect, became even more valuable. Right? It did. It did. It became the second book. I remember when I was when I had written my first book, and it's an odd question that is natural for the audience. But when someone said to me, so what are you working on now? I thought, four years I've worked on this book. Give me a chance to sit back and just relax and enjoy it. But I had a dear friend, Bryn McLean, who wrote a phenomenal book called uh, One Good Mama Bone. And Bryn said to me on one of our many, uh, when we were crossing paths as debut novelists, she said, aren't you curious if it was a fluke that you could write a national bestseller? And she said, don't you want to know if you can do it again? And I thought, well, that is 
an interesting challenge. I like that. It's not simply I'm going to write another book, but let me see if I can possibly do justice to it. And in my mother's memoirs, where it was an astonishing piece of, of little, little known to me then uh, history, and that is my mother was familiar with German, with Nazi POWs during World War II that helped her on tobacco market floor in, in 1944. So that became the research that I thought was going to give me a book with great angst and great tension. And the truth of the matter is that that story was filled with great tenderness in the little town of Williamston. And there were 18 camps across North Carolina alone um, that then it ha I had to rework it. Here becomes the challenge as a writer. How do I take a story that's too sweet and too lovely and then be begin to put a lot of meat and a lot of stress and tension justifying a World War II story? So it wasn't a fluke. The first one wasn't a fluke. Uh, no, All the you. Little Hopes has been doing well. Um, if the Creek Don't Rise, your first novel started with a writing contest, right? It did. Um, my first national little winning short story. Um, it was so funny. I can remember I'd gone through all of my mother's notes and I'm thinking, well, let me just try to write some short stories. And I, I remember sitting there. Now, Leah, this can't be difficult because you've got every word at your disposal. Why would why is this so hard? Well, my first stories were probably much too nice. When you learn to cut your writing teeth on memoirs, you tend to write nice stories about your family that you love. And the stories that were being selected had much more roughness and, and rougher characters. And for me, it was a combination of not giving up on the short story contest and being introduced to a book called Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, won the Pulitzer Prize, came out in 2010. And when I read that book, I thought she is a despicable character but I can't look away. And I said, there's a lot to learn in this book. So I then wrote a short story. The opening line was, I struggle to my feet. You're given a prompt when you're entering a short story. And I'm sitting there and you've got a blank page and you've got, I struggle to my feet. And you're thinking, what in the world? And you know, if we went around this room, everyone would complete that sentence differently. But to me, this young girl in Appalachia, and I'm not from Appalachia, um, she completed the sentence by saying, I struggle to my feet, I straighten my back, I lift my chin and he hits me again. And it threw me back against the seat and, and my chair it was like this powerful thing. And I'm thinking, what happened to her? This is me, the writer, what happened to her? So that little short story, which was four pages, um, became my first national win. I got a check for $150. I mean, I thought this is big time. <laughs> and I took the first two pages of that short story and the last two pages, and I created If the Creek Don't Rise and 350 more pages in the middle. But they were, uh, it was a wonderful challenge to create rich, believable, authentic characters. When you talk about your characters, I've, I've read other interviews that, and you talk about them as if they are people that you didn't create, that they created themselves. That's, that's the goal. When you're writing, and I know we've got writers in, in the audience, when you have characters that step forward and start telling the story for you, that's a joyful thing. Uh, when they um, are telling you what happened to them. Um, it used to be when I was writing, I would be backed into this corner. A character would say something like, that's the last time Walter beat up on me. And I went, what in the world happened? 
Now I'm writing the story, but what in the world happened? And so you, I've learned to trust the process that that truth will come out. It's, it is a long, long, tedious process to get to that point where you know the characters and they know you well enough for that kind of communication to start. Your books are rich in imagery, especially I'm, I'm thinking all the um, all the little hooks with the tobacco farm and with the bees and the purple honey. How much of your mother's personal experiences and your personal experiences are infused into these stories? Well, certainly the setting, because I mean, I was born in eastern North Carolina on a tobacco farm. Um, I ran barefoot and, and there was it was just all the, the things that was in that book. But it was the research, and that's it's the joy in writing is the research that un, that almost unleashes things you did not know existed. So the purple honey, the honeybees, the government contract for the beeswax, all of that came from really tireless research. My husband and I must have gone to Eastern North Carolina six, seven, eight times, spending lots of time. And that's in addition to all the other reading and research you do. And then in come these gifts to you. You know, when you're sitting there talking to someone who remembers the POWs on their family farm and you're beginning to get this stuff and you go, I didn't know this, this is wonderful. So you take these gifts and then you try to do justice to them. Your mother passed not long after you interviewed her. Yes. What do you think she would make of all the little hopes? Well, my mother used to say when people would meet me and say, oh, I just love Leah. She's just the sweetest woman. And she says, I take no credit. I take no blame. <laughs> so she had this great sense of humor and, and she was, she probably wouldn't take it all too seriously. Um, I thought that I was going to have difficulty with this second book having such an influx of her life, but I've created characters a little differently than what she was. Um, and so they are, that hasn't haunted me quite the same way. But certainly I think in the sense of the, the sense of community, that sense of hometown, which I want to tell you a quick story about the little town that that my mother's met the POWs in, you know, a few years later, or she was married, and a few years later, I was born, and then my sister was born. And we lived very modestly all of my life. I mean, we were at that time living in a three-room upstairs um, of, a, of a little farmhouse right on the railroad track. Um, and so I was always just very daring and my sister was needing to be tended to being a newborn. So daddy said, I did not have money, but I found the money to fence in a little piece so that you'd stay put if your mama needed to run up the stairs and do something. So mama says she's upstairs. She's probably changing Gloria or she's, uh, you know, getting her some food or something and phone rings. And she said, Lucy, you know where Leah is? And mama says, well, I hope she's downstairs in the yard. And they said, no, she's, she got on a tricycle. She drove, she, she pedaled two blocks, crossed the railroad tracks, went down a block and she's in the, the soda fountain place here swearing, you have not fed her and she needs ice cream. <laughs> so that's the joy of hometown, little town. Everybody knows you, there's Leah tiny little thing on that tricycle. I could, I've, I've got pictures of it, um, but it was, you were being taken care of. Someone was gonna call your mama, get you home. When you look back on that experience and now having lived in Lynchburg for so long, what do you think the experience of putting down roots in Lynchburg and, and living your life there and seeing, seeing things play out in your life, how has that 
and and also being that you didn't publish your novel and you know until later in life how did the gift of time and where you spent it shape your writing career now that's a good question i've often thought that if i were a young writer um I would probably be good or okay, but it is the wisdom. In fact, a lot of people tell me that, gosh, you, you write such wise characters. And I usually quickly say, I'm not that wise. You know, they come and talk to me with their wisdoms. But I do think that in, in my case, at this point in my life, that it is certainly um, a marvelous gift um, to look back and understand what's important and what isn't. And for me, it was when I had my son, Paul Clements, who, um, it, it made the hometown feeling uh, terribly important. I mean, I, I was happy to set roots down. It, it wasn't something that I necessarily appreciated when I was 16 or 17, but certainly when I was 30 and 32 and wanted the values uh, and just the, 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 the comfort in, in a town. I, I, I'm very fond of Lynchburg and I don't think I will uh, you know, ever have any reason, Dave, and I don't have any reason to live anywhere else. My last question for you, for aspiring writers, how would you recommend that they look introspectively at their own upbringings and those family stories as you have done and use them as tools for their writing? Well, first of all, I think you you don't want, it helps me, and this is gonna sound terribly cruel, but it helps me that all my relatives are dead. You know, <laughs> that I write about my mother's past. And, and therefore, because I remember the first time I read one of my little short stories, and mama said, you're gonna say names? I mean, it was just a scary thing when I mentioned one of her sister's names. And so it's, it's if you're going to use it, always write fiction. Do not try to pretend that you're writing nonfiction and that therefore you can understand how someone else thinks or reacts or whatever. Everybody's life is so complex and rich behind the scenes. So you create the characters that you can climb into their skin and you can then master that kind of, uh, their richness that you've created. But uh, take those things with a grain of salt uh, and don't try to bring, oh, well, this is the way Aunt Susie always was. Well, Aunt Susie doesn't want to hear that. And so you want to make sure that you're creating also, I, I'm, I tell aspiring writers, don't try to make really sugar sweet characters. People like the rough characters. The few of you who've read my books, you know the Olive Kitteridge nods, the, the, the mean people that were the most fun to write, but also it allowed me to climb into their skin and find those pivotal moments when things didn't go right. And that's life really for us. And then what do you do? So that becomes the important thing. Before we let you go, any hints about what we may expect from your third book? Oh, I'm so excited about my third book because I, I, I feel like I'm, I have been leading, been led toward this trilogy. You know, my first book, um, based on the little short story, When and Loving the Characters, set on a mountaintop with a, a teacher and a preacher um, and some rough, rough world. The second book is much more loving and um, uh, is, is a heartfelt memory. So I've decided that if I have a third book in me, and again, knowing that it's a three to four year process, that that third book is going to have a component from each of those books. I've been told that 
I create characters that are unforgettable or difficult to forget. So I thought, well, let's take a character from the first book and a character from the second book and give them a reason to meet. And then you, the, the readers of the earlier books, would say, well, that's what happened to that sister or that's what happened to this person. For me, it's an exciting full circle, but it will be a complete standalone book that is going to require a lot more research, but in a, in a fun, glorious way. We've got a long list of places to go next in, in 2023. Get ready. <laughs> we are traveling to bed. Your yet. partner. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We can't wait. Thank you, thank Leah. You. Thank you. All right, just checking the time here. Well, our next guest needs almost no introduction, but for the sake of consistency, he'll get one. Robin Reed is not even a full week into retirement, and I'm sure he is um, already regretting agreeing to do this for me. Um, but he is in week one of retirement from your hometown station. For 40 years, he graced our television screens as a meteorologist and then as an anchor. Robin came to broadcasting by way of a part-time job at a sporting goods store in Alice Springs, Australia. An opportunity to broadcast U.S. sports scores with the Aussies cemented his love of broadcasting. When he while he originally thought baseball would be his career path, his time at JMU, we have some Dukes in the audience, I know, yes, yes, uh, cemented his fate in the industry. He started as a sports director in Harrisonburg before a chance forecast landed him the gig at WDBJ7. Robin continues to teach broadcasting at Virginia Tech, and when he's not working, you'll find him on the Botetot County Farm. He's married to an artist, Teresa, who he met on his very first day on the job in Harrisonburg. He has two children and two grandchildren. Please welcome Robin Reed. Thanks for coming out of retirement for one night only. So this is what happens when you don't have to be on the air at 6.30 at night. You get to do cool things with cool people. It's great. How is retirement going, the first um, five days of it? I, I, I'm, I still wake up at the same time. I still get nervous at the same time because I think I have a deadline that I don't have. Like the phantom. Yeah, deadline. and so I still have shadow deadlines in my life after almost 50 years of broadcasting, your body resets and goes to, oh, I should be putting on a tie right about now, uh, but that's not happening. Um, has it been weird to like not get up? Have you been like feeling weird at six o'clock and I'm, I'm, and I'm not in the studio or is it kind of nice? No, I've been married with Teresa long enough to know that we have things to do. <laughs> no. Good, good, glad to hear it, Robin. <laughs> Well, Robin was the subject of our most recent podcast, and so for extra, we recommend that you go listen to it for more behind the scenes. But let's go back. Uh, you had to fill in in Harrisonburg on the forecast. Somebody at DBJ spotted you, wanted you, said uh, he could hire you cheap. And, um, and did. And you came. <laughs> what was your very first impression of Roanoke? So Roanoke was going to be the um, obligatory two-year stopover that all broadcasters go through because you're always seeking the higher place, the bigger city, the bigger audience, the bigger money. And when Teresa and I got to Roanoke, you know, it was a pleasant start. Um, no, no real, no real problems. It was, you know, kind of cruising along. I had no idea what I was doing because they hired me to be a weatherman. Had zero training in this particular thing. 
but it, it was a time in television where this is in the this is in the early 1980s where um, it, television wasn't defined as a money making event with news. It was just something that came on at six o'clock. And so the whole object of the game was not screw it up. Don't break this thing. Whatever we're doing, don't break it. And so that was the only bar that had to be set. So from every moment after that, it was like, okay, we're just kind of cruising along. Uh, we're having babies. It's, it's a nice town. I wonder where we're going to go next. To back up just a split second, like so many people, every two years we did move to another place because my father worked for the government. I had no idea until I went to college what branch of the government he worked for, but it turned out it was the CIA, which is why we moved every two years and spent at least a few minutes in Alice Springs, Australia. Does anybody know where Alice Springs, Australia is? You would, of course, and you would, of course. I've got, I've got my researchers here in the room here. But So you're right in the middle of the country. You're smack dab in the middle. You're a thousand miles from the nearest city. The only way to get there is to get on an airplane and fly there, which made Xavier sports really interesting because there, we were the only high school. So who are you going to play? You, <laughs> so you get on an airplane, you go to another town, and you play all the sports over a two-week period. So if you're on three teams, you're exhausted by day four. And that's how we did it, right? And then everybody came home and got sick because they were all exhausted. So... I was used to moving every two years. And when I married Teresa, she said to me at one point, um, I've been in a small town all my life and I would enjoy seeing a few things. So let's make sure we get out and see a few things. 42 years later, <laughs> we haven't left Roanoke, but there's a very simple reason for why. And it's connected to, I didn't know what I was doing for a living. So it's raining outside. I used to get blamed for that all the time. I love retirement because <laughs> nobody has said anything to me about the rain. But what happened was a, a major flood came through Roanoke and we're talking about through a river that normally is about two feet deep. And by the time this event ended two days later, it was more like 25 feet deep. And my wife was living in a house very close to the river. She's pregnant. She has a two-year-old in tow. And she's rescued that day in a boat from some kind strangers who had a flat boat that just walked from house to house, water up to their necks, rescuing people. Where's Robin? Well, he's at the television station trying to figure out what in the world is happening here because it had never happened before in Roanoke. A few weeks later, while we were cleaning out our house, which really smelled bad at that point, some kind things happened. And I think Xavier knows what I'm talking about when, when we're talking about community and how community can come together. Two things were happening simultaneously. Number one, they were selling um, tickets to drive by my house for a dollar to see the weatherman whose house got flooded. Can't make that up. Number two, we got some very, very fine uh, feedback from the community and some gifts from the community. They were monetary gifts because the flood of 85 happened during the holiday season. And at that point, I realized I'm in the community I need to be in because they reached out, showed their kindness, showed their love, and it was time to return that love. And when you're returning love, and when you're in a, in a community that needs certain things, and you can perhaps assist in that. And in my case, it was visiting fourth graders at every single elementary school in a 25 county area. 
that's what happened. And I blinked. And I don't know if Teresa blinked the same time I blinked, but it was a long time. And so 42 years later, we're still here. You told the story about how in, in probably the darkest moments right after the flood, it's you're trying to pull together for Christmas. You're trying to replace things in your house. Jack G, a Channel 7 employee, knocks on your door and hands you an envelope. And you thought, I was fired. fired. <laughs> well, first of all, it was in the pink envelope. What comes in pink envelopes? Pink slips. That's a joke that maybe a lot of people don't get these days because now it's an email or, you know, something like that. But no, no, I really thought I'd been fired because we were feeling terrible about ourselves at this point. We, we had a kerosene heater warming a, a three bedroom house and that has a funny smell to it, by the way. So we legitimately, I thought we'd been fired and instead it was a contribution from all the employees chipping in. There were about six WDBJ employers that lost everything that day. They were in Salem has these apartments that have really low garden apartments, like below the level of the river. And so they lost everything. We were just massively inconvenienced. But for them to turn around and say, here, we want you to have something for Christmas, which ended up being a washer and a dryer because mm -hmm. we'd lost that in the flood. But nonetheless, it just it it changes your life when people do that. That wasn't going to happen in Washington, D.C. That wasn't going to happen in New York. I was born just outside of Washington, D.C. All you get there is traffic and people flipping you off. That's it. So you stayed. You, you yes. told me it, uh, you, you decided you would stay as long as it was feasible and it continued to be feasible for, for many more decades. Um, when you stayed, you gained local celebrity status. You Roanoke are sexiest man many years running. <laughs> Teresa loves to hear about. What was it like? What was it like to constant? And what is it like to constantly go to Kroger and, and have people, you know, I, I, former uh, general manager Bob Lee told me that, you know, people don't go up to you and, and say, Mr. Reed, they say, hey, Robin. And then they have that familiarity with you. What what has that been like? First, let's just take a step back. And let me say for the record, Kroger owes me some money. <laughs> I can fill a parking lot. <laughs> By just saying a four-letter word, it's snow. Everybody goes to the store. What's it like is um, if you stick around long enough and people have an opinion of you, and if you're approachable, um, and not every day do you want to be approachable, but Kroger's a, a breeding ground of familiarity. And so, and by the way, it continues today because now that I've retired. Um, the first question or the first statement is congratulations on your retirement. And there's really no answer to that statement <laughs> other than thank you. And so you end up walking around the store saying thank you all the time. I think Kroger owes me money. <laughs> but I forgot what the original question was. What's it like being a celeb? So that, that sexiest guy in Roanoke thing. So I once asked the editor of the Roanoke, how in the world could that even be possible? And he said, Robin, you're thinking about it too much. Everybody votes for their boyfriend or their husband or whomever their significant is. And you just got two or three votes. And that's all it took to win. <laughs> True story. Well, they did it enough times that it became a running thing. And then they, yeah, and then they dropped the whole concept because after, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, they had to come up with a different category. So they just threw it away. Um, 
you had mentioned that you guys had had conversations about traveling and seeing the world. And then you say, did you ever regret staying or did you ever wonder how your life might be different had, had you moved on after a couple of years? I wanted to a few times. There were times when I wanted to see a couple of cities that I didn't know much about and I thought they'd be interesting. One of them was Pittsburgh. Just because I got a call one day and, and somebody um, said, would you, would you be interested in working here? I ended up being one of two. And then as Xavier would say, the door shut on me and I well, didn't get that job. And what was weird is when I saw who got the job, he looked exactly like me. <laughs> Another white guy with a mustache. That's how that went. Then I thought I wanted to go to Charlotte because Charlotte seemed like an interesting place, kind of an up and coming city and, you know, not Atlanta, but Charlotte. And um, they offered me a job for half of what I was making in Roanoke. So the decisions were made for me. I didn't have to really think it through too much uh, because I knew that the work we were doing in Roanoke was so interesting and it was changing so fast. And I got to work with so many incredibly talented people that really, for me, it was just watching this kaleidoscope of talent go by me. So much so that I really didn't mind it when the audience came up and really had a sour word for you, which happened every winter season, every snow event. Boy, this town is weird when it doesn't snow for a while. And they want it to snow and they want it to snow and then it snows once and they don't want to see snow again for the rest of the winter. They're fickle, these audience members, I tell you that. <laughs> But to do that in a bigger city, to do that, um, you know, for more people would have been fine. But I kind of liked our hometown audience. I asked you the other week how, you know, you've reflected on these last four years and you, you said, I haven't had a chance to. And you kind of look forward to sitting down after everything that's happened over the last week with your retirement and getting a key to the city. And um, have you had a moment to kind of think about the last 40 years and perhaps what you're most proud of in that time? The honest answer is no. Uh, one of the things about being really busy, because the TV thing was actually a side hustle to my teaching job at Virginia Tech. And if you look at the calendar, oh, that's right, the semester's ending and we're all grading exams right now. So as a pure function of being busy, no. But also because I don't think leaving one thing and starting another really needs a whole lot of examination at the time or maybe even later. Maybe it'll come much later. Maybe, maybe life will get quieter. But right now it's 100 miles an hour every day. So I don't think it's time to think about what happened because this retirement that I just went through was, was wonderful. I mean, when people are saying nice things about you every day for weeks on, on end, <laughs> It's exhausting, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of nice, you know? So yeah, I think the reflection may come much, much later. Um, but for now it is like, what's around the next corner? What are we doing? So you have your farm, you have your students, you have your kids and you have your grandkids. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Traveling with Teresa, because when we first got married, she did say, I would like to travel. And except for company-sponsored uh, trips in which I was also the host and therefore was um, friends with 40 or 50 total strangers for a couple of weeks, um, that's not really traveling, is it? So I really have in mind that we need to get on a boat uh, and go float on a river somewhere and 
see Europe or um, do something that's, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to fly anymore. I used to love to fly, but boy, what a pain it is these days to fly. So we'll get there somehow, some way. But yes, I need to travel with my bride because I promised her we would do that. My last question for you, Robin, before we go to Q&A. Um, what is your greatest hope for the hometown that you have chosen? Man, that's a good ending question, isn't it? She brings big stuff out at the end. What is my hope? My hope is that they continue to realize how special they are. Roanoke is an interesting place because it has a lot of very positive things going on, but they have something of an inferiority complex at times. They're, they're not sure they're, they're good. And in fact, they are. And I know that because um, a boy who was born just outside of Washington, D.C., and who uh, lived in uh, Taiwan and the Philippines and Africa and Australia and a whole bunch of other places in between, when we came here and saw the beauty, first of all, the gorgeous, gorgeous surroundings, and then the people that attach to you and, and their, their, their stories and their wisdom, there's so much beauty around here that I think sometimes they don't know. So my hope and wish is that they'll continue to blossom into the city that they are um, and that they'll realize there's some fantastic things going on here, not the least of which is a really growing medical community that's replacing the railroad community. And that is a pretty good trajectory for a, a town to be on. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they'll continue to realize how special they are. And by the way, this little secret, the key to the city does not unlock anything. <laughs> I tried and it doesn't work, but it's a, a marvelous uh, a memento. And I'm, I'm pleased that the mayor could hang it on my neck and it's safely tucked away right now. Thank you, Robin. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.